Thanks be to God. You may be seated. If you are new or newer um, to GCF, to Grace Christian Fellowship, what we typically do on Sunday mornings for preaching and teaching is we do what's called consecutive exposition. We typically go through books of the Bible, um, verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph. Although we've taken a little break from that this fall, we're doing a series called Restoring Sexual Sanity. And today we're taking a break from that break, and we're going to hear a message on, Refor on the Reformation. Reformation Day is coming up uh, this Wednesday, and Pastor Bill, would you make your way up? Uh, Pastor Bill is going to speak to us this morning um, about some crucial topics related to the Reformation. And Pastor Bill is the founding pastor of Grace Christian Fellowship. He is, uh, yep, let's give it up for, yeah. Pastor Bill, many of you know, is uh, Pastor Dave's uh, father. Bill is a, uh, he is a husband, a father, a grandfather. He's an author and a speaker. And for me personally, uh, most importantly, he's a friend and a mentor. So again, let's welcome Pastor Bill. Testing, testing, working, good. All right, this morning we is Reformation Sunday. My son Dave said, Dad, would you speak to us on Reformation Sunday on a subject that has to do with the Reformation? How many of you know what the Reformation is? Okay, good, most of you. We're Protestants because of the Reformation. And for us, the Reformation is very important. The Reformation was 506 years ago this coming Wednesday. And... Um, I want to talk about the heart and soul of what Luther thought was the center of Reformation theology and thinking. And to do that, we did to discuss two individuals, Martin Luther and a man named Erasmus of Rotterdam. So I'm going to give you just a short bio of each of their lives, and then we'll talk about a conflict that they had. In uh, 1483, Luther was born. That was a long time ago. When he was 17 in 1500, he went away to college at a time when very, very few people went to college. He was very bright, so his father sent him to study law. He got a bachelor's degree and a master's degree in law. And then, after he finished his master's degree, he was walking, he was going home to visit his parents and walking, and he got into a thunderstorm, bad thunderstorm. At this point, Luther's not a believer. Well, he's a Roman Catholic, but he really doesn't know the Lord. And he becomes very afraid. And so he cries out to St. Anne, who was the patron saint of minors. His father was a minor. Save me. If you save me from this thunderstorm, I'll become a monk. So thunder and lightning's cracking all around him. He's saved from the thunderstorm, and he goes home. And within a week, he's gone down and enrolled in the Augustinian Order of Hermits and becomes a monk. His father's furious with him because his father spent all this money uh, giving him all these years of training in law, and now he's become a monk. So he was very scrupulous as a monk, meaning he had a, a really sensitive conscience. He understood that God was holy. He knew that he was a sinner, and he knew he didn't measure up. So he was constantly stirred up, anxious, and guilty. His spiritual visor was a man named Father Stoppitz, who was a very kind man. And so Stoppitz, recognizing that Luther had this problem, decided to have him study theology, thinking 
if Luther studies theology, maybe I can cure him of this constant anxiety that he has about God. So Stoppitz sends him off to study theology. He gets a second bachelor's degree, not only in law, but now in Bible. And then he finishes his doctorate in Bible and becomes a lecturer to the Augustinian order of hermits, the monks. In 1513 through 1517, he spends four years lecturing on the Bible. He lectures on Psalms. He lectures on Hebrews. He lectures on Romans and Galatians. And while he's doing this, he sees justification by faith alone, which is very obvious in Scripture. In other words, we're justified or made right with God. We're saved not by through our works, but through faith. And this was a huge thing for Luther because remember now the scruples that he's got. And so seeing that it's not about his works, that it's about faith that he's saved changes everything. In 1517, Brother Johann Tetzel is in a town next to Wittenberg where Luther lives, and he's selling indulgences, which means, by the way, the Catholic Church still believes in indulgences today. You could give the church money, and the church would give you a paper which would, in turn was freeing relatives of yours who had died who had gone to purgatory. Catholics believe in purgatory, a, a kind of a temporary hell where you go to work off your sins and justice is satisfied, eventually you work your way into heaven. It's just another form of works righteousness. But anyway, you could give the church money and you could buy relatives out of purgatory. So people from Luther's congregation have gone to hear Brother Tetzel and they come back and complain to Luther. And so Luther publishes his 95 Theses on the door. He wants to argue, have a debate about indulgences. Four years later, of course, this blows up into a huge thing in Europe, and four years later, he's been ex excommunicated by the Catholic Church, 1521. Two months after that, he has to appear before the Imperial Diet, the Holy Roman Emperor, and the Imperial Diet at Worms in Germany. Here's Luther by himself, a poor monk. Nobody's with him before the entire Imperial Diet, the Holy Roman Emperor, all the cardinals, all the dukes, and, and all the hierarchy at that time. And they asked Luther to recant of his works because his teaching is becoming very popular in Europe and is stirring things up. So Luther finally says, no, I can't recant. I'm, here I stand, famous book written about Luther's life called Here I Stand by Roland Bainton, taken from his statement. Here I stand, I'm gonna stand on God's word. And so he leaves the imperial diet and survives four years. So that's Luther. Let's talk about Erasmus of Rotterdam. Erasmus, uh, do we have a picture of Erasmus? There he is, good. A painting. Erasmus was 17 years Luther's senior. He was the bastard son of a Dutch priest, which means his mom and dad were never married. In those days, you know, priests couldn't marry, so... Uh, but this priest had a relationship with a woman and she conceived Erasmus who was born. You had to, in those days, if you were a, a bastard son, you didn't know who your, your mother and father weren't married, you could never become a priest unless you got a dispensation from the Pope to become a priest. Well, Erasmus got that when he grew up because he was brilliant, he was very intelligent, and he, he, he was ordained and became a Roman Catholic priest. When the Reformation began, Erasmus was the world's best-selling author. Erasmus was sophisticated and eloquent. He had a gift of prose that was amazing. He could write. In 1520, 20% of all books in print were by Erasmus. 
20% of all books in print were by Erasmus. He was the most popular man in Europe. He was a, a 16th century celebrity, kind of like Will Smith would be today or Taylor Swift, okay, to kind of give you a perspective on his life. The difference was he was an, he was an intellectual. Luther and Erasmus were 16th century intellectual giants, okay? That takes us to, to compare them to each other. Erasmus was a Renaissance scholar specializing in New Testament Greek. Luther was a biblical theologian. Erasmus and Luther knew each other personally. They had met several times in Wittenberg and they were friends. Erasmus loved the Bible, but Erasmus read the Bible devotionally. Luther loved the Bible also, but Luther read the Bible both devotionally and doctrinally. And here's a huge difference between these two men. Erasmus and Luther were both deeply concerned about the moral condition of the church and its clergy. I mean, it was bad. If you were a Roman Catholic priest, you could pay the local bishop, whom you were submitted to, a fee every month, and you could keep a concubine as long as you paid the bishop a fee. I mean, the, the morals were, it was bad. But Erasmus had no interest in changing doctrine. Uh, Doctrine for Erasmus was, a, was not a solution. Doctrine was a problem. It provoked conflict. Doctrine divided people. For Erasmus, Christianity was about morality. And in this regard, he was the prototypical liberal. In other words, he didn't, he didn't want to get too doctrinally specific. He wanted to improve morals, but he didn't want to stir things up. He didn't want to cause any conflict in the church. Luther was also deeply concerned about the moral condition of the church. But for him, doctrine was not a problem. It was the solution to the collapse of morality in the church. Christianity was about the doctrinal change that alone would produce the morality that he and Erasmus both wanted. Erasmus published the first Greek New Testament in 1516. So there had been the Bible of the New Testament was written in Greek originally, and since about the year 300, there had been no assembled Greek New Testament, but the New Testament had been translated into Latin, which was called the Vulgate translation, and that's all people had. Well, Erasmus did the church a tremendous favor. Since he was a Greek scholar, he went back and assembled the Greek New Testament and published it in 1516. And significantly, the Reformation began the next year, 1517, because Luther and Zwingli and all the reformers immediately went out and bought a Greek New Testament and read it. And they noticed huge differences between the Greek New Testament, the original languages, and the Vulgate New Testament, okay? So Erasmus did us a tremendous favor, and for that we are grateful. And that takes us to their conflict, which was over the bondage of the will. Now you're probably thinking, come on, Bill. What could be more obtuse and philosophical and not relevant to us today than the bondage of the will? As Erasmus gradually understood where Luther was going doctrinally, he became increasingly concerned. So in 1524, he published his book, The Freedom of the Will. It was a pushback against Luther. The next year, in 1525, Luther responded with his book, The Bondage of the Will. And here's what Luther thought about Erasmus's book. He said, quote, I greatly feel for you having defiled 
your most beautiful and ingenious language was such vile trash. Now, it was the 16th century. People, the language was pretty guttural and coarse. I, I greatly feel for you for having defiled your most beautiful and ingenious language with such vile trash, which is as if rubbish or dung. The actual, in the original Latin, it was a much stronger word than dung. Should be as if, as if rubbish or dung should be carried on vessels of gold and silver. So here's what Luther's saying. He's saying, Erasmus, your beautiful prose is like a silver platter, but the content of your teaching is like feces on the platter, okay? That's what he's telling Erasmus. Then Luther thanked Erasmus for addressing the real issue on which he was convinced that the entire Reformation turned, the bondage of the will. And here's what he said in the preface. In this, meaning the bondage or freedom of the will, moreover, I give you great praise. You alone, you alone in preeminent distinction from all others have entered upon the thing itself. That is, the grand turning point of the Reformation cause. And have not wearied me with those irrelevant points about popery, popery means the pope, purgatory, indulgences, and other like baubles, rather than causes with which all have hitherto tried to hunt me down, though in vain. You and you alone saw what was the grand hinge upon which the whole turned. And therefore, you attacked the vital part at once, for which, from my heart, I thank you. Okay? Now, that's not the way we think today, do we? And you're probably asking yourself, why did Luther think this was so important? It's a subject that we never talk about. We don't think it's important at all today. It's a subject that's obtuse, philosophical, and irrelevant to us. So why does he think the bondage of the will is the hinge upon which the Reformation turned? And here's the answer. Unless the will is bound, the gospel is not the gospel that God intends us to rejoice in. The good news is diluted. It is not the gift of grace to be received by faith, and therefore God's grace is not fully glorified. So at this point, you might be thinking that Luther and Erasmus are crazy. What is the biblical support for Luther's assertion? Is there biblical support? Yes, there is, and we'll come to it in just a minute. But before we do that, I want to define what we mean, what Luther meant by the bondage of the will. First thing we want to establish is what he didn't mean. He doesn't mean that you are not free to decide who to marry or what car to buy or what house to live in or what school to go to. That's not what he's talking about at all when he talks about the bondage of the will. What the bondage of the will means is this. We are bound or controlled by our spiritual and moral nature. Here's a great way to understand it. Jonathan Edwards made this argument. Jonathan Edwards, who also wrote on the bondage of the will, many, many great uh, Christian scholars have. He said this, we have to ask ourselves, is God free to commit sin? And of course, we're going to say, no, he's not. Why isn't God free to commit sin? Because his nature controls him. He's divine. His nature is divine. He's utterly holy. He hates all evil and sin with an impassioned hatred. 
His nature controls him. He's not free to commit sin. If God was free to commit sin, we would live in constant terror, worried that God would do something horrible. But God can't sin. It's impossible for God to sin. His nature controls him. In the same way, our nature controls us. Sin corrupts our nature. Our sin nature keeps us from pursuing ultimate good. God himself, where do we get that in Scripture? Romans chapter 3, verse 11, no one seeks for God. It doesn't say some people don't seek for God. Paul Paul doesn't tell us that, well, most people don't seek for God, but a few do. No, no one seeks for God in the way that God wants to be sought or in a way that it would save them. Sin, our sin nature also keeps us from doing ultimate good. Not only do we not pursue ultimate good, we don't do it, which would be serving God wholeheartedly motivated solely by a desire to amplify His glory. To be, some, to be virtuous, we not only have to do the right thing, but we have to do it for the right reason. And it's impossible for somebody who's not a Christian to do the right thing for the right reason. What's the right reason? The glory of God. You don't even know that God is glorified. If you're not a believer, you don't even have any concept of the glory of God. So it also keeps us from doing ultimate good, which is doing the right thing for the right reason. Where do we get that? Romans chapter 3 again. None are righteous. No, not one. Pretty universal language. No one seeks for God No one does good. Now, Paul's not saying that we don't do good things on a horizontal plane. We don't do good things relative to one another. We don't sometimes, if we're non-Christians, serve one another. I remember a non-Christian relative saying to me, who's still a non-Christian, yeah, but I go to the soup kitchen once a month and volunteer. This person was doing a a bit of self-justification to me, a pastor, trying to say, I'm a good person. And on a human plane, yeah, that is a good thing to do. But again, it doesn't earn any credit with God because it wasn't done for the glory of God. Not only that, but the rest of the month, she lived in sin constantly, so it was completely canceled out by the rest of her life, okay? No one does good. None are righteous. No, not one. No one seeks for God. That's Bible. So then how is the will freed? If our will is bound by our nature, if it's impossible for us to pursue God out of our own nature, and it's impossible for us to do saving good from a fallen nature, then how is the nature freed? The drive for happiness is one way to understand how the will is bound and how the will is freed. The Bible and reality presume that God has engineered us to resolutely pursue our happiness, all of us, Christian and non-Christian. We will even defer gratification, in other words, deprive ourselves of happiness on the short term to enhance our happiness on the long term. But if you think about your life carefully and critically, you will see that everything you do is to enhance your happiness. Even serving your spouse is to enhance your happiness in a sense. Maybe the reason you're doing that is you want to please God and you know that pleasing God is your happiness. Maybe you're serving your spouse because you find your happiness in your spouse's happiness. That's a good thing. Maybe you're serving your spouse because you uh, want to have a happy life, and you know if you serve your spouse, it'll, it'll increase joy and happiness in the home. Everything we do, ultimately, 
is to enhance our happiness. However, we are sinners, and this means that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. You remember in Genesis chapter 2 when God gives Adam the test, he says, on the day you eat of the forbidden fruit, you will surely what? Die. You'll die. Physically death will come, and spiritual death will come. What is spiritual death? Well, one of the significations of spiritual death is I have no capacity to connect my happiness with God. I'm dead to God. I don't know God. I don't know what God is like. I I can make up a God in my own mind, which we all do. But as far as knowing the real living God, I have no capacity to know Him, trust Him, or serve Him. I'm dead to Him. Paul in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, says the same thing. He says, the wages of sin are death. There's a billboard in Coeur d'Alene every time I, on the way to Coeur d'Alene, every time I drive by it, big billboard. The wages of sin are death. They are. Spiritual death and physical death. So first, spiritual death means we have no ability to see our sin and weakness in the sight of God's holiness. So this death has two effects. I'm dead to an understanding of who I am, and I'm dead to an understanding of who God is. And second, spiritual death means that I have no way, as I just mentioned, to make a connection between my happiness and a relationship with the God of the Bible or a life of holiness. Now, there's a caveat I need to make here. We have the ability to link the God of our imaginations, the God that we have made up in our own mind to our happiness, but we have no capacity to link the real God, the living God, the God of the Bible, who stands against us with our happiness. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. We're not weak or sick in our trespasses and sins. R.C. Sproul uses a great anecdote to describe this. He says, imagine a man is drowning in a lake. He's on top of the water. He's thrashing back and forth. He can't swim. You're in a boat, and you come by, and you throw him a life boy with a rope on it. He grabs it, and you drag him in. He's sick. He's struggling. He's, he's still alive. He needs salvation, but he's alive. That's not what, how the Bible describes us. We just read in Ephesians 2. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. So visualize instead this guy. He's dead. He's on the bottom of the lake. He's got lead weights around him. He's been dead for an hour. He's on the bottom. And to resuscitate him, you have to send a diver down with one of those shock paddles, put on his chest, boom, shock him, wake his heart up, resurrect him from the dead, and bring him to the surface. That's what we're like spiritually. We're not sick in our sins. We're not able to reach out to God. We're dead to God. Therefore, towards God, our will is bound. When God resurrects us to new life, He opens our eyes to our problem, sin, and the source of all of our happiness, God. We humble ourselves, confess our sin, believe the gospel, and repent with increasing joy. Here's how Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Paul's making a comparison to creation. He's saying, just as in creation, God said, let there be light, and there was light. So, when a new creation occurs, and that's the context of this verse, the new creation, 
When God makes us a new creation, he says, let there be light. And Bill Farley's eyes are opened, and he sees, Paul describes it as the glory of God in the face of Christ, but it may just be that you see, ah, God is good. I can trust him. Maybe it's just a little bit of trust. It's not very much, but where there was no trust before, now there's some trust. God has raised you to life and opened your eyes. See, that's what Luther's saying. This debate is all about. So where is the bondage of the will in Scripture? Well, let's go back to Ephesians chapter 2. If you've got your Bible, open with me real quickly, and we'll take a quick look at it. We'll go through this text. We won't spend a lot of time on this. I'll let you study it later yourself. But Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 through 3, describes our problem. I want you to read along with me. I don't have it on the screen on purpose. I want you to look in your Bibles. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 through 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Read that with me out loud. If you've got an ESV, let's read it together. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Hmm. Dead. Not sick, not alive partially. You were dead, dead to God. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, in other words, the devil, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature, by nature, children of wrath. God was angry with you. God was angry with me. I was an abomination in his sight. And I wasn't a drug addict. And I wasn't sleeping around. And I wasn't an alcoholic. It was my nature that made me a child of wrath. And it's your nature, a nature hostile to God, opposed to God, ignoring God completely, having all kinds of other gods besides God that you're worshiping that makes you a child of wrath. So there's our problem. Dead in our trespasses and sins, following the devil, living out of the lusts of our flesh, and by nature a child of wrath. What has God done to save us? Look at verse 4. But, 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 God, being rich in mercy, mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. God is under no obligation to save us. All God owes us is justice. He doesn't owe us salvation. But God, at infinite expense to his son, sent him to be crucified for us. Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. There's the second mention of grace. In kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And he's going to repeat verse 5 again. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your doing. This is Luther's point. Erathmus says, no, this is my doing. Luther says, no, you were dead. This is not your doing. It's the gift of God. 
not a result of works. In other words, God didn't look down through the corridors of history and say, I can see that Bill Farley's really a little bit better than other people. He's more sincere. He's going to choose me someday, so I'll choose him. That's what we think, don't we? That's what I thought for the first 10 years after I was saved. No. What does it say there? This is not your doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works. God didn't foresee any good works in me. God foresaw nothing in me but a child of wrath, abominable to him. And yet in that state, God sent his son to die the most horrendous death on my behalf so that no one may boast. You can never say, I'm a Christian because I'm a good person. I'm a Christian because I'm just a little bit better than those other people. I'm a Christian because, yeah, God chose me because I'm, you know, I'm sincere. I really want to do the right thing. No, Paul's saying, no, no, no to that. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were a child of wrath. You were following the devil, the prince of the power of the air. You were living out of the lust of your flesh, seeking your own glory and your own happiness, and you were ignoring God completely. And in that condition, God came. By grace we have been saved. And verse 10 is the conclusion. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So key takeaway. God doesn't resurrect us from the dead because we've worked. We work because we've been resurrected from the dead. Here's the, here's the bottom line. Or we could say it this way. We don't believe and repent because we've been born again. Excuse me, excuse me. We don't believe and repent to become born again. We believe and repent because we've been born again. God takes the initiative, and this is where Luther and Erasmus were at odds with each other. And this has been the debate for the last 500 years. Actually, it started with Augustine in the fourth century, and Pelagius has gone. Every time there's an outpouring of God's Spirit on the church and spiritual vitality comes to the church, this debate re-resurrects itself. So in summary, because we were dead in our trespasses and sins, because our will was bound by sin, salvation must be a gift. In, in our salvation, God acts alone. Would you say that with me? In our salvation, God acts alone. Let's say that again. In our salvation, God acts alone. This is called monergism. It's a big fancy theological word. Mono meaning one. God is the one working. It's not a synergism. It's not me cooperating with God to be saved. That's Catholicism. And that's really weak Protestantism. That's not, I don't think, a good summary of what the Bible teaches. Eternal life cannot be earned. It is a gift of grace. God resurrects us from the dead, regenerates us, gives us new birth, and we respond by believing and repenting. It's all of grace. Grace occurs when God gives Jesus the judgment that I deserve so that he can give me the reward that Christ deserves. Grace occurs when God gives Jesus the judgment that I deserve so that I can get the reward that God's Son deserves. 
What reward does God's son deserve? Think about that for a minute. He's God. He's perfect. He's sinless. And that's the whole idea. We'll share the glory of God, the Bible tells us. So, now, we don't have the capacity to experience the joy and happiness that God's Son deserves, who is infinite in His capacities. We're finite. We'll always be finite. But there's some great mystery here of the incredible reward that God has for His saints. Here's how Jesus describes the experience of resurrection and new birth. It's in the 13th chapter of Matthew. And this is, look at this. What's He describing? He's describing somebody that God has raised from the dead. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. That's new birth. Is that how you see it this morning? This is not a white-knuckle self-discipline club. This is a, this is a for the joy set before me. It's, it's a pursuit of lavish reward. It's the pursuit of my happiness. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who in finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. This is what, what Luther and Erasmus were arguing about. Luther's saying, no, no, Erasmus, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. The will is bound. And you'll never respond to God the way you're supposed to until God regenerates you and gives you new birth and opens your eyes to see the glory of God in the face of Christ, that he's the pearl of great price, that he's the treasure in the field worth selling everything to obtain. That's the kingdom of God. So why should you do your spiritual disciplines? To enhance your happiness in God. This is John Piper's whole stick, didn't it? Desiring God. But it's true. This was Jonathan Edwards through and through. I'm a big, big, big student of Jonathan Edwards. I love Jonathan Edwards. And this was his whole thing from beginning to end. It followed that Martin Luther and all the other reformers believed in the bondage of the will and unconditional predestination, which means God predestines us not conditioned upon good he sees in us, but he just saves us, despite the fact that we deserve hell and damnation. He reaches down and saves us. J.I. Packer writes, historically, this is in his preface to Luther's bondage to the will. It is a simple matter of fact that Martin Luther and John Calvin, and for that matter, Ulrich Zwingli, Martin Bucer, and all the leading Protestant theologians of the epoch of the Reformation stood on precisely the same ground here, on other points, they had their differences. But in asserting the helplessness of man in sin and the sovereignty of God in grace, they were entirely at one. To all of them, these doctrines were the very lifeblood of the Christian faith. Here was the crucial issue, whether God is the author not merely of justification, but also of faith, whether in the last analysis, here's the punchline, Christianity is a religion of utter reliance on God for salvation and all things necessary to it, or is it a religion of self-reliance and self-effort? 
This subject is so important that Augustine wrote extensively on the bondage of the will in the fourth century. Calvin, in the next generation after Luther, wrote a book on the bondage of the will. Jonathan Edwards in the 18th century wrote an entire volume on the bondage of the will. It's an important subject that all major Protestant theologians have thought was crucial to us. So let's close with four quick implications. The first, or applications. And the first is simply this. God will never forsake you if this is true. Here is the rationale for our statement. God will never abandon you or forsake you if you've been born again. Since we are spiritually dead, the initiative for our salvation is with God. If we've been saved, God took the initiative and saved us. He changed our nature, and that change is an irrevocable change. It can't be undone. It's like changing your nature from a dog to a cat or something. And once that, that change has taken place, it, it doesn't go back. That doesn't mean we're going to have some ups and downs. And that doesn't mean we not go through a time where we backslide for a period of time. But if that nature has been changed and it's a permanent change, it will stay with us. If God took the initiative to save me when he saw no saving good in me, when I was his enemy, a child of wrath, then I am secure in his love. What won't he do for me now that I am his friend? This is Romans chapter 5, verse 10. You can read it later. In other words, Paul's reasoning like this. He's saying, if God did this for me when he didn't like me, what's he going to do for me now that he likes me? See, the problem is you didn't really think that God didn't like you. You thought God died for you because he liked you. You thought Jesus died for you because he was obsessed with affection for you. And of course, because you were such a good person. And of course, if that's the case, you have to keep being a good person for him to keep liking you, don't you? But if he went to the cross for you when you were a child of wrath, when he was angry with you, see, the, we're told in the Sermon on the Mount to love our enemies, why? Because God loves his enemies. And that magnifies his love a hundredfold, doesn't it? And when he died for us, we were all his enemies. God loves his enemies. If he loved you like this when you were his enemy, is he going to withhold anything from you now that you're his friend? If he loves his enemies like that, how is he going to love his friends? That's the rationale here. Romans chapter 5, verse 10. Number two, humility. Calvin wrote, if I reject the bondage of the will and predestination, which is a logical consequence of it, then humility is torn up by the roots. And Calvin was right. See, the great sin is pride and the great virtue is humility. And in everything, God has designed the gospel to humble us to restore true virtue in us. And so, Calvin says, if I reject this teaching that Luther brought us and that I also, Calvin says I also believe in, then humility is torn up by the roots. 
I'm going to spend my whole life going around thinking about my sibling that's not a Christian. You know, if they were just a little bit better person like me, they'd become a Christian. Or somebody you work with, or a relative you work with that's a radical liberal that's pro-Hamas today, and you're thinking, you know, if this person was just like me, if this person was just had a little virtue in them like me, they would become a Christian, and they would follow Christ, wouldn't they? What am I doing? I'm looking down on people. Why am I looking down on people? Because I think Jesus gave me new birth and raised me to life because he liked me, because I was good, a little bit better than most other people. And uh, see, so Calvin says, no. When we accept this teaching of the bondage of the will, if we don't accept it, humility is torn up by the roots. If we accept this teaching, the deep roots of humility go down into our life, and we begin to really love other people. I was Sunday school last week. I, I used the example of there's some non-Christian guys that I golf with. I was out on the golf course last week before it got so cold, and with another guy who was not a Christian, and a third guy just joined us because we had an open spot, and he had a foul mouth. Oh, my goodness. Every time he took a shot and made a bad shot, he would, the F word came out, and it, I mean, it was worse than that, okay? But uh, I was dead in trespasses and sins just like him, wasn't I? Why am I a Christian? Is it because I'm better than he? No, because God in his mercy and kindness reached down and opened my eyes. So how can I be too critical of him? How can I look? I mean, I, he, what he, I, don't, I don't mean critical in the sense of not recognizing what he was doing was wrong. But I mean, my heart of, I had a heart of compassion went out towards this individual, and I was able to love him. He kept saying, I'm sorry for my bad language. I know you're a pastor. I said, no, I don't care. I didn't care. That wasn't the issue. If he's a Christian, now I care, because he's made a commitment to live like under, the, under biblical morality. Now that's a different story, but he's not a Christian. Humility, Calvin says, if we don't embrace this, humility is torn up by the roots. We're proud and arrogant, and the gospel is not doing its work in us. Thirdly, evangelism. There is no one God cannot save. Because, see, we tend to think, just as the example I just gave you, well, I was easy to save because I was a good person, but so-and-so... Judy and I have a relative that just, it's, this person seems impossible, could ever be saved. And I told her yesterday, we've been praying for this individual, we've been praying for her for 50 years. And I said to Judy, God, it's no harder for God to save her than it is to save us. But it seems that way to us because we think that we, that it was, it's, it's going to be somehow harder for God to save her because she's so far gone. She's a radical, liberal, lesbian. It's bad, okay? And, but all God has to do is open her eyes to her true happiness. <gasps> I see it. I want that. It's the treasure buried in the field. And God can do that just like that with anybody, just like he did with each of us. So don't give up in evangelism with people. Never give up with people. Some people pray, 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 and continue to pray and never give up. And lastly, this subject's important because the Bible implies to us 
that this is the reason God created and redeemed us. It's the reason He created everything, and the reason we're here is to glorify His grace. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5 and 6. Paul tells us, God predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. Why? To the praise, to the praise of His glorious grace. That's why. That we might spend eternity in heaven just erupting in praise to God for His amazing grace towards us. Grace is the Greek word charis, means gift. It's a gift. We can't be earned. This is something that God just freely gives us because God is great. And the more we understand how unworthy we are of grace, the more we are going to thank God for His grace and praise Him for His grace and rejoice in His grace and exult in His grace. So, the bondage of the will. Reformation Sunday. Hopefully, you have a new appreciation for this subject, that your will is bound, that God, if you're a Christian, has freed it, that He has freed it by showing you that Christ is the pearl of great price, the treasure hidden in the field. He's opened your eyes to see something of the glory of God in the face of Christ. The path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, growing brighter and brighter until the fullness of days. So, the path of the Christian life, the progress of the Christian life is just seeing that treasure more and more, getting a clearer view of it, desiring it more, loving it more, longing for it more, disciplining yourself more and more to find, to realize your own happiness in that wonderful gift of grace, which is Christ. Let's close with prayer.